so you know, Korob, and, and there wasn't enough building towards that in the original draft of this episode. So they really, so they added that scene, you know, where they talk about the the old ones, which is funny because that's also from Little Girls too, if you remember. Block is a Lovecraftian. Okay. He's a thoroughgoing Lovecraft guy, and so references to the old ones crop up in his work as though he's writing in the Lovecraftian universe. <laughs> I don't I hope know. That's not what he's talking about. Well, yeah. I think if he was talking about those old ones, that we'd have a much bigger problem on our hands than these two <laughs> people who can't get along. You know, maybe actually, so now that you bring it up, that's actually probably <laughs> one of the problems with this story uh-huh. is, is that I, there's, I don't feel like there's any like real threat in this episode. Right. Like we don't know where they come from. So mm-hmm. we don't know what, why they're here. Are they just exploring? And, you know, cause right. Korob at one point even says like, Hey, we could have been, we could have come in peace. Right. So wait, were you coming in peace or were you coming to like take over the galaxy? What was, we don't know what their plan was. What, what were they doing here? In that whole middle act in which they do kind of develop that, it seems uh-huh. like our science is so foreign to their science. Their science looks a lot like magic or telepathy or it's all mentalism for a yeah. sufficiently advanced species. And they want to learn like how communicators work and phasers work and energy things and warp drive. and They're interested in that kind of science that they don't know anything about. Because they're using transmuters and and getting around, and they're able to you know adjust matter with their mind. Yeah, but again, it never really like it never really clicks on what they're doing here, other than maybe exploring. Right. And Sylvia yeah. Just I don't know. And even if that is it, even if now we have talked it out and we've realized that what it was is like these two were just here exploring this new galaxy, this new way of thinking, this new way of being, and Sylvia decides like, hey, I love the idea of sensations and feelings and all of this stuff, and so she gets sidetracked. It's, I don't feel like that's communicated enough. I don't know. I, I, yeah, so there's this, there's this, so we start off in kind of this spooky, you know, they're, they're getting into the subconscious of humans and, yeah. you know, our fears, and then all of a sudden, how does your communicator work? It's fascinating. And then you get to this, like, um, you lift a stopper, and then there's, like, the, the thing at the end. Yeah. Which we have to stop Sylvia from from what exactly? Figuring out how, how communicators work? <laughs> exactly. What are we stopping her from? Yeah, I guess, yeah. She, I mean, I guess, again, she wants to take over the galaxy or do whatever it is she wants to do. Billions of worlds of all different kinds of sensations or whatever it is she says. But you're like, yeah. is that bad? So, is she like... For example, had they kept going with the spooky malevolence of, you know, the witchy, ghosty, then, you know, she could have decided that the way she was going to get her technical knowledge that we realize she wants in Act 2, you know, with by spooky, horrible means, you know, we're going to take over all of your crew. I'm going to subject you to spookiness and shackle you to walls and, and turn you into my little pets. Yeah. Turn Sulu into a newt. We'll you know, then you'd be like, wait a minute, she's going to screw it. And then you get like other people to beam down and get, whoa, it hypnotized. And you're like, oh, she's going to get the whole crew. We're, we're trapped here. You know, we got, we, Korob put a, a case around us. 
she's bringing people down, turning Sulu into a newt, you know, threatening us with more witchcraft, you know, craziness in an attempt to threaten us into giving us technical secrets, explaining our science. That would be more frightening, but they they really abandoned the spooky stuff after episode after the first act. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what was the point of it anyway? Like they got it wrong. You know, I mean, I was thinking yeah. of like the emeralds and gems. You know how they're like, yeah. hey, we got this wrong. We think that this is, and so, ooh, this is supposed to scare you because this is what, for some right. reason, inherently in humans, it's scary for skeletons and castles and black cats to be around. So it's interesting that in the same way, you know, our, our crew might beam down, stumble into this thing and get out of it without really knowing what were they here for? We, I guess we'll never know because they turned into little kind of puppy things at the end and died. That they, the villains, didn't understand our crew. That they're like, oh, wait a minute, we thought you were. So this is the same mistake. I'm now going to draw the big analogy. Do it. Uh, this is like so many other you know, super being episodes, right? Like uh, Squire of Gothos, which I think uh -huh. is the most similar to this episode. Yeah, which, I referenced it a lot. <laughs> in which, you know, Trelane, because of course we got to Sal, right? The Sal right. is one of the first guys to beam down to figure out the Trelane business. Trelane could see the earth, but it was hundreds of years ago. So he saw it in the 18th century. He didn't understand that fire was hot or that food had taste. He apparently could hear things because he could play the music and he could see things because he had some of the, you know, look correct, right? The aesthetics, yeah. Right. But clearly he had a misunderstanding of what was going on. He didn't realize that humans were this advanced. He got things wrong like taste and heat. All the sensations, notice the sensations come up again, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That you feel... You know, he, he didn't understand any of that. And so here we have another group of super beings who, one, don't understand humans the way they think they do because they're looking at it through the wrong something, right? Not necessarily a time shift in this case, but they got too deep into the subconscious. And then they also don't understand sensations. Now, in this case, they're obsessed with sensations as opposed to in that one where it's just like, hmm, the fire's not hot. The food doesn't taste. He doesn't. There's something wrong here. He doesn't have as much power as we think he does. Mm -hmm. Here, it's a weakness that Kirk tries to exploit at the end of Act Two. And so we get a lot of similarities. Yes. So there were a couple things that uh, DC Fontana, when she did her rewrite on this episode, she sort of scaled down. Most of it uh, was involved the cat, the giant cat at the end, mm -hmm. uh, which of course is totally ridiculous. Korob was supposed to die by a giant like paw through his like chest. Obviously, virtually impossible to simulate, especially in this. Excuse me, especially in the '60s. So uh, you know, she just made it the door fall on him because that made made much more sense. It was easier to do, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, it was also uh, her idea to uh, put the put the little uh, Enterprise into the block. You know, preventing any further rescue attempts, so mm -hmm. that that was off the off the table. So <clears throat> the audience wasn't wondering why they were sending people down. That's also smart. Uh, so we got Joseph Peebney here, who's hired to direct. He and Mark Daniels uh, would pretty much alternate as the Star Trek resident directors. 
you remember Peefney and Mark Daniels. They did, you know, so many of the uh, first season episodes. So it's kind of exciting to have those guys back. Uh, there are going to be a few exceptions along the road, times when those guys needed a break or time off or whatever. But for the most part, they were the two people who handled uh, the directing. I love this. He has this to say about uh, he, he, he feels like he was one of the people who brought on the idea of, of Chekhov being Russian. He said so. Uh, and he had worked with uh, Walter Koenig before on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So he also was one of the people who suggested that Walter Koenig come in. So I brought him in and he had a new career, you know, and he looks great. He's got this great face and he's got some kind of interesting accent. <laughs> sure in Russian. In any event, who cares? That's what he said. I thought it was amazing. In any event, who cares? Not to bring the room down a little bit, but uh, Theodore uh, Marcuse, who uh, was plays Kolob in this episode, uh, died a week after this aired in a motorcycle accident. How crazy is that? It's those, it's those motorcycles, I tell you. I uh, know, man. Taking care of everybody in the 60s. So, uh, as you mentioned, DeSalle comes back in this one. Of course, he was in The Squire of Gothos, as you were just recalling. He was also in uh, The Side of Paradise. Also, John Winston comes back for the fourth uh, for his fourth appearance as Lieutenant Kyle, the transporter chief. Yep. Kyle becomes a kind of regular as well. Right, exactly. I mean, he's uh, often just standing there. He maybe gets a line or two, but we see him... You know, he's he's like Lieutenant Leslie, who was played by Shatner's stand-in. Yeah. And so who's always available on set for, you know, wandering through a hallway, handing someone a, a document. Exactly. Kyle never quite disappears. To build the set of the castle, not like any of the rooms or anything, just the actual, like, castle set was $9,375. But the work was done on a Saturday and a Sunday, so time and a half was required. So the final cost ended up being $13,000 to build this. And this doesn't include set dressing, just uh, building of the interior and the exterior of the castle. I almost wish they could have like basically used the Munsters set or something. <laughs> yeah, you know? seriously. You know, it, it looks spooky or whatever. We're kind of like, wait a minute. In the same way that you'd look and go, isn't that Mayberry? <laughs> right. You'd go, isn't that where its box would normally be? Behind that curtain, couldn't we pull a thing and like, rang? <laughs> oh, wait, that's, the, that's that cave guy from uh, that one episode <laughs> with the robots. Right. Yes, he shows up, but he shows up in his robot costume. You rang. <laughs> This is ridiculous. <laughs> so day one of production was uh, also while Walter Koenig's first day on the set. Uh, they did all of that stuff on the bridge, including uh, all the scenes where uh, Kirk is on the ground and DeSalle's running things on the bridge. This day was also marked with the first mention in uh, Star Trek of the word credit being used. When uh, DeSalle says, uh, maybe we can't break it, but I'll bet you credits to Navy Beans that we can put a dent in it. Navy Beans? <laughs> I know, they mentioned Navy Beans. That was my next point. I'm like, really? Navy Beans? What are you talking about? The uh, Starfleet Navy? I don't know what you're talking about, Navy Beans. 
So uh, this is uh, this is a little bit here about uh, choosing DeSalle here. Uh, Kuhn decided that there was a need for someone to be running engineering on occasions whenever uh, Scott was running the ship. So he thought, well, there might be times when they need to call down to engineering. We got to put somebody there. So let's bring in uh, DeSalle here and we'll just make him in. So uh, he was signed for a recurring role. However, within weeks, as more scripts came in, it was discovered that when Scott was left in command, the scripted action always played between the bridge and whatever was happening with Kurt and, Sc uh, Kirk and Scott on the planet. And no side trips to engineering were ever needed. So uh, did the opposite of what it was supposed to do, and he, uh, Barrier, ended up leaving the show. Yeah. Poor guy. Another one who, another person, we've seen a couple of them, who said, uh, yeah, no, you'll be coming back. It'll be great. And then uh, they just don't. So in the kind of expanded universe, to borrow a, a term, people really like to sound. So uh -huh. he, you know, there's there are stories that involve Mirror de Salle. Oh, really? Yeah. Funny. There are um, stories about when he becomes captain and he's a captain de Salle. And, and one of the things that's interesting is that he never had a first name. So the original script gave him one name and that kind of became his official name. Right? But in other places, he had, you know, no names, so people made up various other names. So he ends up with, with a guy with, depending on what you're reading, he's got like six or seven first names. Interesting, interesting. So uh, also, this is weird, is, is that when they remastered these episodes from the 60s, they changed the contrast levels, and so uh, some of the so, so some of the episodes, including this one, the original lighting of the episode is dramatically different from when it was originally aired, uh, because they brightened it so that we could see everything, as opposed to like, oh well, we actually did that for effect, not just because of you know crappy lighting in the '60s. So uh, this is one of the big episodes where uh, Finnerman, especially himself, was like, nope, they just ruined everything that I had <laughs> done on the day because of their remastering. Also, this is interesting, the uh, small metal model of the Enterprise that uh, it was encased in the box of, box of Lucite. So of course they filmed, they filmed it one day with it out in the Lucite, put it in the Lucite overnight and then finished filming it the next day. It was later donated to the Smithsonian by Matt Jeffries. So that's cool, so that's in the Smithsonian somewhere, theoretically. Uh, let me see what else I got here. It's right next to the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, exactly. It could be boarded up somewhere. No one would ever know. It's now absorbed mysterious powers. Yep. Let's stop there, and we'll uh, go ahead and get right into this episode and have some fun talking about Cat's Paw. The Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. Music is different uh, in this episode. Uh, we actually got a composer to come in and almost directly do brand new music throughout the whole thing. So our opening here is different from our normal uh, twinkly one that we are, we're so uh, used to. It's not that one. It's another one with crazy horns going. And it's got like a 60s hip vibe to it. Still no response, yeah, sir. Just a little bit, absolutely. 
Uh, Spock and Kirk stand behind Uhura. They're like waiting for something. We can't tell what it is. Oh, it's a response from the surface. So uh, they're waiting for Spock and Sulu to call up. They know the procedures. They should have called. But then Spock, I don't know why, suggests that perhaps the uh, away team didn't find anything. That's a weird suggestion coming from Spock, who knows the letter of the law and knows procedures and would follow them. Yep. But there you go. Then suddenly Jackson calls up and says, uh, one to beam up, sir. Kirk says, one? Where's the rest of the group? We are all left to wonder. Where's the rest of the group? Jackson repeats, one to beam up. Kirk heads down to the transporter room with, like, no security or anything for this weird situation. I mean, if suddenly there was only, like, one person to beam up and he's not answering you, wouldn't you be like, I, I mean, again, we are crafty in the ways of sci-fi and uh, horror, but, I mean, wouldn't you, uh, I mean, it just sounds suspicious. You'd be like, we better get somebody down there with that phaser. Anyway, so they head down there. McCoy arrives, and then so does Jackson, who stands there for a minute and then falls, like, really hard to the yeah. floor. What's up with this fall? I know. He's not even a stuntman, but it, they, they were actually specifically looking for somebody who could fall hard. So, weird. Anyway, and then McCoy gets to him, and instead of saying, he's dead, Jim, he instead says, the man is dead. Come on, McCoy, you got one line. Let's uh, let's give us what we're looking for here. <laughs> it's life, Jim, but not as we know it. <laughs> well, we get that. We've gotten that like oh, two or three times from Spock. Yeah. We're not getting anything. We're not getting any of the cool stuff out of McCoy. Uh, although we did get, uh, I'm a doctor, not an elevator or something out of him. So that's a little <laughs> Then uh, emanating out of the man's body, I get that's what we're supposed to believe, I think. Uh, is, a, is a voice that warns them of the curse, and if they don't leave, they will die. Opening credits. Now, even our opening credits are different. Uh, now we have the, uh, the singing version of it, you know, with the... Oh! And, uh, but no awesome lyrics, just, just the... The vocalization here, but it's a—that's actually a whole new rewritten version of the uh, opening credits. Not rewritten, I shouldn't say, but it's a orchestrated, newly orchestrated yeah. version of the opening credits. So uh, Kirk, Spock, McCoy decide they're going to beam down to the planet. I was thinking this has got to be some ridiculous breach of Starfleet, right? I mean, first of all, you're not bringing any security down with you. Three of your guys are missing. No security guys. Okay. No one bringing any of those guys. And then, I mean, I, I guess DeSalle is a lieutenant commander of some sort. We don't quite know what his rank is. But, I mean, you got Sulu and Scott down here as well because they're the missing party. Shouldn't, like, Spock be on the bridge or somebody minorly important? Yeah, I mean, so majorly important? You've got the first, second, and third in command down on the planet. Right. You've got Sulu who's the navigator. You've got McCoy, who's the ship's doctor. It's like you're basically left with the, the newly promoted, uh, you know, second in engineering. And I suppose the records officer is always there as a lieutenant commander. <laughs> that guy we never see or hear from again. Love He's it. probably in some capsule somewhere, you know. <laughs> Hiding out. 
That's right. Love it. I mean, obviously, we know that this would never happen in Next Generation, right? Because they got the rules set in right. Next Generation. So also, uh, Picard of and here's the thing: is they got a bigger regular cast, right? Right. Yeah. 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 So the idea that you're gonna, you know, send everybody down is silly. Instead, basically, half of your main cast would stay up on the ship and do real things. Whereas what we're really getting here is kind of an introduction to Chekhov. Right. True. So there's the moment where he's like, you know, do you need to calibrate your instruments? And he's like, I'm not that green. Yeah. So we're getting a, a bit of an introduction to, to Chekhov. Otherwise, maybe somebody thinks that DeSalle is going to become a, you know, a, a regular character or a recurring character, and him being there is kind of wavy. You've still got a horror there. Yeah. But uh, I can't imagine Next Generation with, with basically the new guy, the guy that someone thinks is going to be a recurring character who won't, and like a normal member of the bridge. You know, so it's like, I don't know, Worf, you know, some guy who was you know, navigator in an episode when Wesley wasn't there. And Wesley? Right. You know, would that be? That's who's on the bridge? You know? Yeah. It'd basically be like if they were to do this, it would be, well, LaForge would be Scott, so he'd be gone. You'd have like right. Worf, basically. Yeah, it'd be Worf he'd be and Wesley command. on the bridge with a guy who were like, we don't know who he is. <laughs> but to be fair at least that happens a lot in in next generation you know somebody goes off to do something and some random person like standing at another station comes in and takes their spot see that happen a lot actually so uh just for just so the audience knows at this point they tell us that uh they are here to discover who killed jackson and you know what else happened to scott and sulu we also now have a mist coming in it's rolling in we spent a lot of time talking about how you shouldn't walk into mists in Galileo 7. I don't want to rehash it. And you do get that great scene where where Shatner is like testing the mist with his foot and Yeah. You know, the is there like water down here? Should yeah, I it's like it's, it's like he thought very carefully about how would my character approach this mist? I'd have to test the footing. I'd be concerned about whether it was slippery or wet or solid. I have to establish that on, on camera. That's because I'm telling you there is an entire week that they spend on security <laughs> protocol that they tell you not to walk into mists. That's right. <laughs> Spock also mentions that the mist is strange here because there are no bodies of water. There's been no change in temperature. So where's this mist coming from? We don't know. Spock then picks up life signs. Uh, Kirk calls it up to the uh, bridge to try and confirm it. DeSal turns to Chekhov and says, what do you got, mister? And then uh, we see Chekhov, who really does have the most god-awful wig. Man, George Takai was not kidding. That thing looks awful. And he totally so looks like he, to just, his... he might just break out into, you know, daydream believer at any moment. Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, but then they lose the away team again. It suddenly disappears. We don't know what happens. The trio presses on. And then uh, some witches or ghosts or something appear out of nowhere. There's one high screechy one that I don't even understand, so I decide to close caption it. <laughs> All three say, Captain Kirk, Captain Kirk, Captain Kirk. And then they each say, go back, go back, go back. Uh, and then they say, remember the curse. 
Wind shall rise, fog descend. So leave here all, or meet your end. And then there's some cackling that goes on. So uh, now I understand why I didn't understand what they were saying. It's because it's impossible to understand even knowing what they are saying. It's ridiculous. Well, I think uh, that, and then these are what the these are the Macbeth witches, right? Yeah, yeah, basically, exactly, yeah. But then, if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have these awesome next five lines, which are Spock, comment. Uh, very bad poetry, Captain. <laughs> A more useful comment, Mr. Spock. <laughs> well, what we've seen uh, wasn't real. Oh, now that is useful. I love that. That's just great. Then Spock says that, I don't even know what this means. Uh, that at Azmet 24, there are life readings. Then uh, suddenly the wind really starts to blow. And uh, McCoy says, well, that's a pretty good illusion, Mr. Spock. <laughs> McCoy then spots a mansion, kind of a creepy house around the corner. They sort of banter back and forth about if the mansion is corrupting the sensors or not, or, but why isn't it affecting the tricorder? Uh, anyway, so they just move inside the into the castle, and they are scared by a black cat who hisses at them. Oh, boy. Someone really is trying to scare them. All of these Halloween tropes all of a sudden. And then they mention trick or treat. Notice they don't mention Halloween. They mention trick or treat. Back aboard the Enterprise, they have lost all trace of the trio. So it's interesting here because, especially what you're talking about, how much people like DeSalle, I thought he was so boring and flat. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like for me, you, 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 like, you put DeSalle next to Shatner saying those exact same lines, and you're yeah. like, Shatner every day of the week. You know That's what right. I mean? And twice on Sundays. But yeah, so I, I, it, I don't know. Like, I'm glad DeSalle never comes back because I'm just like, I don't know. I just felt, thought the actor was really flat. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway. So uh, back on the planet, the door closes behind them. They they go wandering through the passageways, sort of following the cat, I guess. And next thing you know, the floor gives away, and they tumble down into oh, a hole in the ground. They wake to find themselves shackled to walls. Oh, my goodness. But next they are fine. Guy. What's that? Next to a fourth guy. Who's been there a skeleton. while? Skeleton. <laughs> yeah, a skeleton just hanging there. And these guys are fine too, right? They just did this fall without any warning. No concussions, no broken bones. Convenient. Then they start saying, uh, could this possibly be an Earth parallel development? So that's interesting because we've talked in the past, uh, I think it was what Little Girls Made of actually, it was one of the episodes where there's this idea that exists that there are similar planets to earth throughout the galaxy right and so uh here it's actually again they actually mentioned it in the episode and so it's funny that that's not something that is i don't know i think that that's something that's interesting that it's not played on more like you but know next, next generation never does it. yeah well yeah here they do yeah. But I mean, you look, go back to what little girls are made of and you're like, well, yeah, it's like the development totally. of, you know, the 1930s or 40s or whatever it was supposed to be. So they start talking about uh, uh, the, how these are all Earth manifestations, right? Ghost stories. Somebody's trying to scare them. Then Scott and Sulu walk in. 
Scott has a phaser in his hand. Kirk demands that he puts down the phaser. Well, first they're like, they're all happy to see them. They're like, hey, hey we're being rescued. Oh, yeah, thank yeah, us, the guys, yeah. yeah. And then they go to each one of them going, yeah, rescue, woo And then they cut back to Sulu and, and you know, Scott, who are like, oh, we're here to collect the newspapers. And, <laughs> and then McCoy and Kirk are like, oh. Oh. They but at least the, they're here to let us out. They got the brain cloud. <laughs> That's right. Scott doesn't listen. He keeps the phaser pointed at them as we go to commercial. Back at it. They try to get uh, they try to get through to the two of them, but to no available. McCoy even says that they look drugged. He says, look at their eyes. I thought that was weird, especially since what we do find out is that they are being mind controlled. Right. It's like, why bring up the idea of them trying? I know that they're like trying to figure it out or whatever, but yeah. it's just weird that they like, that's not even where it goes. So it's like, why even bring that up? Yeah. So I think, and then this may be the question of like realism versus storytelling. Whereas, you know, so this is a familiar problem in dialogue, right? Is that okay. actual realistic conversation is full of a bunch of, non sequiturs and irrelevant detours whereas dialogue is crisp and goes someplace and yeah 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 and so here they're like bringing up things that are dead ends and that's really what you would do in this situation is you'd come up with a bunch of dead ends and then you'd eliminate them and whatever remained no matter how <laughs> implausible would somehow become the truth and instead what they're doing here is is you're like why are they bringing up these why are they like basically putting up Chekhov's gun and then it falls right off the wall yeah, exactly. Good point. Good point. Well said, sir. So Sulu and Scott uh, then release them and uh, tell them, uh, and with the phasers pointed at them, uh, start marching them up the stairs. But as soon as Kirk sees a moment to take the upper hand, he goes to punch them. But it's all stopped a minute later as they are teleported to another room. They didn't even get to throw a punch. So they're in some kind of now throne room or parlor. It's sort of like half throne room, half parlor. It's hard to explain. See, we, tell Middle exactly Eastern, what it is. Half European, half like B movie. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> and the man instantly tells them stop, which they do. Kirk says, "Well, whoever you are, you have shown your skill at creating illusion," which is funny because as we were talking about Squire of Gothos. You know, Kirk almost says this, says this like, hey, we've seen this crap before, all right? Yeah. You're not showing us anything new here, buddy. We've had our share of super beings. Then and we, we get this... come out on, on top every time. Right. <laughs> then we get this Trek trope here of, of, of Kor Korob saying, where did your race get this predilection for resistance? I, I love that. We get that a lot. I feel like we get that. That's a big Trek trope. It, it was in. It was in the the pilot. Yeah, you're right. Exactly with the Telosians. Find out that Korob is his name. Kirk asks why they've been brought here, and he says, "You weren't asked to come here, but you kept insisting on coming." Kirk says, "Then why all the mumbo jumbo?" To which then the 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 cat has to explain what mumbo jumbo is to Cora, who then doesn't even respond, really. He's just like, no, oh, no, I assure you, it wasn't that. And just like, <laughs> what? I don't even know what that means. 
Uh, then the cat talks to him again and says, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Apparently I'm being an inattentive host. And so they walk off. And then the three of them. Because apparently while she's a cat, Sylvia's, you know, like helping Korob, like be a nice guy. And then when she comes back in the room, she's, she's hostile to Korob. She's all about like being mean to the, the crew. It's like, this wasn't the cat lady. You know, this is like a different being that came in here because the cat was kind of right. friendly. <laughs> yeah. Friendly and totally. helpful. You, not so much. So the trio then talk, uh, talk a minute about the, about the cat thing. Spock says, there are ancient Earth legends about wizards and their familiars. Uh, what's a familiar? Demons in animal form sent to pr- uh, protect and help the wizard. To which uh, Kirk basically says something like poppycock. Yeah. To which then Spock delivers this great line of, I don't create the legend, Captain. I just report it. So, you know, if you think about creatures that show up again and again as, as scary, as, you know, whether agents of the ultimate evil or just scary in their own right, cats are one of them. Although, typically the cat we're thinking of as scary is, is going to be a, a manhunter, a lion, a tiger. You see that tiger eating his food. You don't want to. You don't want to wrestle with him all of a sudden. You know, right. So exactly. One of the major forms of like human predation that you find amongst Australopithecines are saber-toothed tigers. We find all these bite marks that are, you know, saber-tooth, and uh, so that's one. Snakes is another, and birds of prey is the third. So. And of course, birds of prey has a special place in the Trek universe. Right, you're just trying to connect it all. I see how you are. <laughs> it all comes back to the Romulans. <laughs> then Korob lays out this giant spread of food, right? Which is just like in the Squire of Gothos. Yep. And I, I, I kept wanting them to taste it because I wanted to see if it had, they, they could actually recreate the taste or not. But we didn't find out this time. Or whether uh, she, Sylvie would be like, oh, it's so delicious. I love sensation. <laughs> she's like, she's like pouring like wine down, like from the bottle. It's just like pouring down her face. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> I get, what? Now see, that was, would have been a great scene. I would have enjoyed that. Uh, Korob then basically said, Says, uh, oh, I think I could, that I can do anything to make you cooperate. And then puts down a, a pile of jewels and, on everybody's plates. Oh, uh, Korob says, you can have them all if you leave here without any more inquiry. Kirk's like, our ship can manufacture all of these. These are valueless to us. That's Korob's exactly now confused. Right. So on the one hand, so- we're getting the very first statement in Star Trek that there is no money. Right now, they don't right. come out and say there is no money in the future. Instead, they're like, oh, "We can just we can just manufacture this. This is easy." And if we think yeah. about it, so the first rubies were manufactured during the 1880s. Okay. Sometimes they would accidentally get sapphires, but they didn't know why. Over the 1880s and 1890s, they figure out how to make sapphires, and and by about 1900, they could make the first ruby large enough to be used in jewelry you know a little bit later in the 1920s 
they start making synthetic diamonds. By 1955, GE had manufactured with witnesses and, you know, all the people were like, oh, yeah, you really did it. They made their first synthetic diamonds. And because uh, up until the 20s, it was like people would say, look, I made diamonds. And you're like, well, how did you do it? And you'd explain it. And people are like, did he really do it? I, you know, and it was till 55 when, you know, GE proved you could do it and how to do it. And, and those diamonds were too small for jewelry, but they could be used industrially as grinding and so forth. And so in 1967, you'd have people going, we well, you know synthetic gems is already a thing. In the future, they'll be able to manufacture tons of them with their replicators. They'll be valueless. And this is the argument, right? Is that in a future of kind of unlimited energy, matter, antimatter being your power source, you can just make anything. Material wants have disappeared. There's no need for a medium of exchange because whatever it is, you just make it. Well, yeah, we're even making, you know, uh, as you've said, we're making diamonds now, you know, and now they've got that process that can basically make jewelry sized diamonds for nothing, you know, yeah. that really is kind of upset to be here. Of all people, they're really uh, kind of upset because they're like, no, we hold the gems. De Beers again talking about uh, James Bond or from James Bond the other day. Korob says he doesn't understand. He has made an error, but nonetheless, the trio has passed the tests. Tests of loyalty, tests of bravery, and you have also proved you cannot be bribed. The cat then asks to leave, which it does. They all watch it go. They all watch it go. And then a stunning woman comes right back in. We find out her name is Sylvia. She tells them that the men's minds have been probed, Sulu and Scott. Kirk then jumps Scotty and takes his phaser. He shoves Scott away like he's useless. That, that was so funny. If you look at that moment, he just was like, yeah. get out of here. It's so funny. Uh, he then hands, he hands uh, the phaser to Spock and says, cover me, which I also thought was really funny. And then he's like, I want answers, and I want them now. Sylvia now has this little necklace of the Enterprise. She holds it over a candle. She then gives him his communicator so he can call the ship. He calls the ship. The heat is rising on the ship. Chekhov says, we're burning up, sir. Commercial. Dun, dun, dun. Back to it. Kirk surrenders. Fine. He gives up the phasers and then takes the talisman of the Enterprise and puts it down. On board the ship, we see now that everything is okay, but that they can't get a hold of Kirk again. Back down on the planet, Korob says, You've seen some of our science now. Let's hear about some of yours. Kirk says, Is it magic or science? It looks like both. Well, what would you call it? Asks Korob. <laughs> Wouldn't even attempt to, says Kirk. Uh, what you do with your mind, we do with tools. It's true, we can manipulate matter, says Korob, but then Sylvia stops him. He's given something away. And then Bones tries to pry some more information out of Cora, but Sylvia shuts him down again. Kirk thinks he's won now. Now that they know I'm alive, how long do you think it'll take for them to send a search party, he says. So then Cora puts the talisman in plastic. Nah, no they won't. There's a force field around the ship. We cut to the bridge, and sure enough, Chekhov sees the force field. Kirk still refuses to co cooperate, and so they are taken away. 
But at the last moment, Sylvia demands that Bone stays. On the bridge now, DeSalle decides that uh, if it's real, then it must be affected somehow. So they keep whittling away at it. And there's our line about the, uh, if it's real, then Navy Beans or whatever. Yeah. Um, back in the cell, Kirk and Bones uh, talk about uh, what, it, what, what could be causing this. Is this like the twilight of reality? Is this like a dream state? What's happening? Then Kirk says, I don't like hostile strangers taking an acute interest in our galaxy, our worlds. We have to stop them. But they realize they are both stuck. Now Bones enters, and he too is being mind-controlled. And he takes Kirk to Korob and Sylvia. Kirk Meanwhile, so disappointed. Right? Yeah. yeah, he's so sad for his friend. Doctor. Meanwhile, Sylvia is starting to dig being human. She likes sensations, we hear. She likes being human. She sends everyone away so that she can have some private time with Captain Kirk. Tell me about your power, Captain. How does it feel? And then Kirk touches her shoulder and then her cheek. Any power you want, I can give you if you join my mind, she says. But here Kirk decides he's going to seduce her, show her a new se sensation that she doesn't know about. And then Kirk kisses her. You find me beautiful? I can be any woman. And then she goes and shows how versatile she can be. Uh, it's the same actress wearing different wigs, but whatever, she can be versatile and different. <laughs> and then he uh, kisses her again. All the while, Korob is in the background watching unhappily. He sees what's happening here. He sees that she is becoming uh, too enthralled with being in this galaxy. And being a sensualist. That's right. Kirk kisses her again. Kirk now is holding her and touching her, kissing her cheek, kissing her neck, all the while trying, uh, finding out about something called the transmuter, the source. She says she won't go home now. She's going to stay here with Kirk. Billions of worlds of sensations. I can't wait to see them all. And then suddenly she sees through Kirk's trick. I can see in your mind you're only faking with me. Now she is angry. <laughs> That's the problem with trying to fool Mother Nature, I wrote. Chekhov now has found a dent in the force field and keeps uh, sending particles of energy at it. They are slowly working their way out of it. Then suddenly, Korob frees Kirk and Spock and tells them that the Enterprise and tells them now that the Enterprise is now free, although they would have worked their way out anyway. So now we have another like situation, another part of the story that doesn't matter. Right. Like, you know, at first we're worried, are, are, is the Enterprise going to get out of this force field? What's going to happen? Are they going to be able to work their way out? And suddenly Korob's like, oh, no, don't worry about it. It's all fixed. Everything's fine. I use don't magic. worry about it. Yeah. Uh, he tells them to leave now while, he, while they still can because if Sylvia finds out, he's going to be pissed. But Kirk says he's not going to leave without his men. They're not your men, says Korob. They're Sylvia's men. Korob tells us uh, how she's become irrational. We could have entered your galaxy in peace, he said. So here's another moment where we're just like, I don't even know what's happening in this anymore. 
they mentioned the transmuter again. Oh, okay. So the transmuter's mentioned again. This is apparently important. And as Korob takes them, uh, takes them uh, out of the dungeon, we see the giant shadow of a cat. It's not even a giant cat. It's just a giant shadow of a cat. We're, we're going to commercial. Something scary is happening. Back at it. Fascinating, says Spock. It is the most ruthless and terrifying of animals, cats. So it's just like you were saying earlier. You know, yep. there's a reason that cats are scary. Back in the dungeon, they uh, climb out of the hole that they were uh, that they fell through. Meanwhile, the giant cat. Oh no! It's outside the door. Then it pushes through the door, and Koab is uh, crushed by it. Kirk tries to help him, but Koab apparently dies or something. I don't know what happens here. Also, this is kind of stupid because as we have seen many times on the internet, cats can fit anywhere. Like the cat would have tried to like squeeze through that little door and he would have made it. That's the other important thing to know. Because cats, man. Cats. Anyway, the cat never comes in. Kirk steals Koab's... Uh... <laughs> See, what, what Kirk needed to do is throw a cucumber at it. Right, exactly. Then it would have hissed and run, run away. Uh, Kirk steals uh, Korob's wand, and then McCoy attacks, and then Sulu, and then Scott attacks Spock. The three of them are quickly knocked out. And what are they using? They look like styrofoam maces. <laughs> well, you know, we, we that was also in the uh, the original uh, pilot episode where all the, those wooden swords they were yeah. using and everything, you're just like, I don't, those don't look real to me at all. <laughs> I know, it's ridiculous. All three are quickly knocked out, but then the giant cat approaches. Oh, if only your phaser had some power. <gasps> oh, this gives Kirk an idea, and he grabs Koab's, uh, Korob's wand, and then he How approaches the giant cat. Sylvia, he says, I have the transmuter. Sylvia then turns back into a woman for some reason, and then Spock warns him, don't let her touch it. They men... They then move their way back into the parlor. The transmuter is not the source of power, but it is an amplifier, we find out. You don't know how to use it, says Sylvia. Much uh, like a I... certain mirror. Right, exactly. You don't know how to use it, says Sylvia. Ah, but I catch on quick, says, says Shatner. Or Kirk, both. One of them. Both of them. At the same time. <laughs> She begs him one last time, please come with you, come with me. I need your ambition, your desires. And then she pulls a phaser on him and says, if you won't come with, come with me, I demand the transmuter. So Kirk, in a stunning, smart use of thinking, breaks the transmuter. An explosion happens. And we find Kirk standing on a rocky cliff alone. Then Spock shows up. Then Bones. Then Scott, then Sulu. It's all destroyed, says says Scott. Not everything. And there are two little bluish puppets of some kind. Now, you would think that I would ridicule the hell out of this, but no, because actually I love this idea. <laughs> I, I think it's great. I think that it's really cool to like come up with something we haven't seen before right it's right. not like a, a it's not like a beam of energy like right. you know with q or the squire it's actually some kind of crazy creature that we've never seen before right yeah it's really neat i like that idea 
And like for somehow in our universe, whatever they look like in their universe, in our universe, this is what they look like, you know, with these little like daisies as eyes or whatever they got going on there. Super cool idea. I appreciate it. So they stand there and they watch and both Koab and Sylvia die without the transmuter. Hmm. All this an illusion, says Bones. Not entirely, says Kirk. Jackson is still dead. He opens the communicator and they beam away. Oh, but for all we know, we get up there and Jackson's like getting up, dusting himself off. <laughs> yeah, possibly. I don't know. It sounds like the way things went that uh, he's dead. Although, if it were Sulu, that's what would happen. Sulu would be getting up going, what happened? Well, you know, that's funny. I thought that same thing because I was like, well, if you're going to use, like, Sulu, then at least have him come back at the end. That could at yeah. least be a thing. You just have but him get up and, like, it was a uh, part of the magic. He just appeared dead. Right, exactly. So uh, let's talk about a little bit about the money because that's what we like to do at the end of each episode. Uh, the Westenheimer Company provided the photographic effects for this episode and the magic show. The cost of effects, $14,150. So you got that, you got the, the 13000 it costs to build the castle, you're looking at 27000 just for that. Nobody's getting paid or anything, that's just $20,000 $20, off the budget. The studio mandated per allowance episode, now down to 185000 episode, or 185000 per episode. The total cost of Cat's Paw, $217,285. Woo! Oh my goodness, we're already so over. The deficit already going into 30, after season, episode yeah. one. Yeah, it's like $30,000. It's crazy. Things are not looking good for Star Trek and Desilu. That's all I am saying. And again, you're going to have these people who are thinking, we got to protect Lucy. We got to protect her money. We can't let these people yep. throw it away on something stupid like this. Some kind of crazy show with little puppet birds at the end of it. <laughs> That's them making fun of it, not me. I'm just saying. Uh, all right. Fiction. Well, that wraps up this episode. Uh, anything else we didn't talk about that you wanted to get to? No, no. Got it all. Got that big piece of it right there. Excellent. Love it. Love it. Well, that's Cat's Paw for you, folks. Crazy episode. Something I had never seen before. Don't ever probably want to see again because ridiculous. <laughs> But next week, we're going to be hitting the episode Metamorphosis. I don't know anything about this episode either, so that'll no. be exciting. What was wrong with the episode? Cat's Paw? Yeah. So uh, I, I think you have like these three disconnected parts, right? Here's going to be my final analysis. Okay, hit the me. The first part is spooky. The second part involves just, we want to steal your technology. And the third part is just people running around chasing each other. Yes. You know, so it's not... It's not entirely an action episode. It's not built on this, you know, they're trying to steal our tech. And then, like, what the heck about the, sp the spooky stuff that disappears? It's like three different episodes that got crammed together. Well, that's my, you know, me, because I talk a lot about story, right? And mm -hmm. I just don't feel that this is a cohesive story at all. Because it just, these things that they set up in Act 1 don't go anywhere. You know, like, there's not even an explanation for why they were using the scary stuff. You know what right. I mean? I know that they had set up the idea of the I curse and everything else. I, th I think it, they they breached this idea of the, and it was very Jungian, right? And then, in fact, Spock makes these references to Jungian 
archetypes. And uh, I thought that was very cool. There's a guy who likes Sun Young. And uh, right. so I, I think part of it is that you were, they were reaching into the collective unconscious, so to speak, right? One of the things that frighten all humans, ghosts, specters, uh, spooky stuff, the cats. Which, uh, yeah. which Spock even mentions. Yeah, right. And then, but then, you know, really it should have never completely gone away and should have come back as part three when they're running around doing stuff. All they really had was the big cat. You know, they weren't having yeah. their minds blown with crazy spectral stuff or. Not but why go to the big cat? You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. admittedly, I, I, I know that they wanted to do bats in, in one of the original versions, and obviously they couldn't get bats. But, I mean, there's, like, other – you could have done a ghost. You could have done – there could have been other things other than a giant cat that would have maybe right. brought it all together. I just don't feel like the cat in and of itself was enough to do it. You know yeah. what I mean? And why scare them? Especially at that point. Once you get to Act 3, like, why, why bother to scare them? I feel right. like – at least I feel like the cat – was there to like attack them. You know what I mean? Right. It was actually ready to like pounce and, you know, like, yeah, exactly. Whoops. I mean, had they done ghosts, I don't know if that would have worked either. I, yeah. The whole beginning just doesn't work with the end other than, Hey, we want to do something that could be scary for Halloween. So the final reveal was like, we break your transmuter, you lose all your power. One of the things they could have been figuring out if they kept throwing illusions at them at the end is that maybe they really have no power. Maybe all they can really do is illusion. Which is another kind of Star Trek trope. Right. Yeah, I guess, I don't, yeah. I mean, I guess that's my feeling at it. Yeah, there's, it there's doesn't no connective like, tissue, yeah. Yeah, it just doesn't really, like, hold together for me. It's pretty ridiculous. Uh, yeah, so like I said, next week, Metamorphosis. Uh, I don't even know what comes after that. Give me a second. So, yeah, we got Metamorphosis, then Friday's Child, then Who Mourns for Adonis. And then, episode seven, we finally get uh, a muck time. So, it's funny because in airing, these two swap. Because episode seven is actually this one, and uh, episode one is actually a muck time when it comes to air dates. So, that's interesting. Anyway, there you go. There's the next seven episodes for you. It's the order we're going to be doing them in. So, get all your watching in now. Anyway, my name's Matt. I'm saying goodbye from Austin, and as always, from Planet Houston is my brother Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. Woohoo! All right, and we will see everybody next week.